This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. A video of the talk is also available along with more downloads on our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. If you'd like to join us in person, our talks take place at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Why do people believe the Bible? Why do people read the Bible? Um, Well, why do people believe anything? Um, The Bible is clearly a religious text and and therefore forms part of a religion or a belief system. Why do belief systems exist? Well, if you think about it, if you look at almost any religion, the primary thing that religion is concerned with is what happens to us when we die. Because it's a fact. Nobody can escape it. Um, was it Mark Twain said that there's only two things certain in life, and that's death and taxes. Um, and so everybody knows that they're going to die. And, a, and all belief systems, or almost all belief systems, are focused around... What can we do about that? What happens after that? Surely that can't just be the end. So some belief systems have a concept of heaven and hell or, or, or a paradise uh, and, and a hell, uh, something like that. Um, other religions have the concept of reincarnation where at the point of death a person returns to life in another form or as another being or even on another plane. Some people believe in the idea of of ghosts and spirits, that a person has a continued existence after their death. And so the Bible, being the the book of the Christian religions, um, but based very much, and parts of the Bible, of course, being based on old Jewish texts, um, the the Bible as, as a whole is is a a book which shows the the mind of god as seen by those religions so it starts with the jewish religion um that the the jewish faith is based in the in the first five books of the bible primarily the old um jewish uh hebrew scriptures um and then through their prophets of the old testament their belief in one God that spoke to their father Abraham. But then from the Jewish religion come the other religions, uh, come come other religions such as the Christian religions and the Muslim uh, faith, Islam. They come out of this same uh, belief system. However, most of them take only parts of the Bible as the basis for their religion, the, um, the and they have they have teachings which deviate significantly in in many cases from from what the Bible says. So, if that's the case, they have reasons why they base their understanding of 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 their God um, on on various other things beside the Bible. So, why do people believe the Bible as? totally accurate um, and, and, and totally the words of God, the mind of God 
uh, an explanation of what God wants men and women to understand. Well, there's several, there's several reasons that we could go to. Um, the Bible speaks of many things uh, that we can, accurate, we, can, we can see are accurate based on modern discoveries and modern understanding. The Bible speaks of psychology and it has insight, it gives us insight into the way we think and the way our minds work. And modern psychology, whatever basis it, it has, whether it's exploratory psychology, um, research psychology, or whether it's evolutionary psychology, or, or whatever it might be, even if the psychology comes from a false basis, largely it comes to the same kind of conclusions which fit in with things that were written in the Bible thousands of years ago. The Bible explains about international affairs uh, and, and politics and, and has ideas for how a, governing, a government system should work. And largely, these are found to be sound and, and, and work um, as, far as, as far as governments choose to apply um, these things. The Bible makes predictions about the future. It makes, it, it makes many prophecies. And these prophecies, the ones that are about um, time between when the prophecy was written and our own time, these prophecies have all been filled. Not, not mostly, like the, the prophecies of Nostradamus, for instance, he, he prophesied many things and, and some of them have happened more or less as he prophesied they would. And that causes some people to hail him as, as a great prophet. However, the Bible actually has a test of a prophet. That is, if, if what he says absolutely comes true, then you can trust other things he says. As soon as there's a mistake in anything that the prophet says, as soon as he has a prophecy that hasn't come true exactly as he said, then you can no longer trust anything else he said. There is nothing in the Bible that should have happened that hasn't happened exactly as God said it would. So there are so many avenues we can go as go down as to as to why a person might choose to first of all read the Bible, and then accept its teaching as the word of of God. I'm just going to take three of these. One, the first one is to to just briefly look at some of what the Bible says about science. Secondly, um, just an example of what the Bible says about medicine. And, uh, and, and thirdly, uh, and the main part of what we're going to talk about is to concentrate on the integrity of the Bible, that even though it was written over thousands of years by many different people in different countries, in, written in different languages, yet the whole thing has a united uh, message which all points to one explanation of what happens when we die. So... Science, then, in, 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 in the Bible. If, if God is, as the Bible claims he is, the creator of everything, the whole universe, then it stands to reason that he understands everything. He engineered space and time and the realms of probability. So although the Bible isn't and doesn't claim to be a science book, the things that it has in it that, that impinge on science must be accurate if we're to accept the Bible and to believe it. But also, 
they have to be presented in a way which is meaningful to people of all periods of, of history, of all periods of time, who have different levels of scientific knowledge. So if, if, if God, for whatever reason, had chosen to um, describe nuclear fusion or fission in, in the Bible, then it would have been meaningful to a handful of people today um, and not at all to people of... Um, more than 50 or so years ago. So the Bible presents things in a way which can be understood by all people, whatever level of scientific knowledge they have. There are many things that have only been discovered, really, in the last few hundred years, what we might call the scientific age, that are there in the Old Testament of the Bible. For example, Isaiah talks about things. He wrote about 3,000 years ago, and Job possibly about 5,000 years ago. Just a few examples. The following facts can all be found in the writing of the Bible. The fact that the universe has a beginning, what is popularly called the Big Bang, what scientists call a singularity, that the universe has a beginning and it is expanding. The Bible agrees and the Bible got there first. That space is a vacuum now that might seem obvious to us um, but until the late 1800s it was believed that space was full of something they called it ether but it was full of something it had to be to carry for, for light to pass through it, surely something couldn't pass through nothing but God knew that space was a vacuum because he made it like that that air even though it's invisible is a substance and it has mass that we're unable to count the stars. Not that, not that there's an infinite number of stars, but that just we're unable to individually identify and count the stars. It's estimated that there are about 70 sextillion stars. But that's an estimate. We can't count them. And the Bible says we can't. That the visible world is made of things that are too small to see. In modern times, we understand the concept of everything, even though it feels fairly solid, being made out of atoms, which are actually, on that microscopic scale, spaced out hugely. And so most of what we see is made of almost nothing. But the visible world is made of things that are too small to see. And the Bible agrees. That the Earth is a sphere hanging on nothing in space. But it's not just drifting randomly. It's held in place in its orbit in space by gravity. The water cycle or hydrological cycle, the fact that water evaporates from the oceans, it forms clouds, it's lifted up to above the hills and then falls as rain, runs down the rivers and, and goes on and on. The fact that in the deepest parts of the ocean that only in recent times we've been able to discover what's going on down there that there are hydrothermal vents in the floor where superheated steam blasts up from underneath the ocean and condenses into water. So there is water filling the oceans up from the bottom and there is water going back down through other holes. And we could just go on and on. All of these things are described in the Bible, in the Old Testament most of them, 3,000 or more years ago. And some of them seem so obvious to us now that we don't even question them or think about them. But it's only 
relatively recently that they have been established as fact by uh, a scientific world. Let's look at one of these in more detail, uh, just briefly. The fact that Earth is turning upon its axis in space. Let's go to Job. Job chapter 26. So Job here, um, under inspiration from God, is describing what he knows and understands about God and about the world he lives in based on what God has taught him. Um, Job chapter 26 and verse 7. It says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Now, there was all sorts of superstitions in the past about how the earth, what, what the earth was and, and, and how it existed. And, uh, and, and people believed, many people believed it was flat uh, and that it had to be supported by something. It had to be standing on something to, to hold it up. But now, of course, we know that forces hold it in place, gravitational forces primarily, hold it in place in its orbit around the sun and the sun in its orbit around the galaxy and the galaxy in its circling around other galaxies. The earth hangs in space. God says it does in the Bible. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. In Isaiah uh, and, and chapter 40, we won't go there, he calls it the circle of the earth and describes how that the heavens are wrapped around the earth like a tent. And so from the point of view of an, an unscientific person standing on the earth, that is how it appears. The earth, you stand on a hill, you see the earth as a circle all around you. And you see the heavens wrapped over you like a tent. And yet God knew, because he made it, that it was hanging on nothing. Um, verse 10 in, in Job 26 he hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. Now, I think in this case, the translators didn't quite know what to make of, of the words, the Hebrew words, when they were translating this. The English Standard Version puts it better uh, and makes, makes it instantly obvious what it's talking about. It says, He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. And if you... If you say go onto, uh, onto Google Earth or something like that and you zoom right out until you can see a satellite image of the whole circle of the Earth, as you, as you are able on the computer to turn that round, you see the point where there's a circle, a, a boundary drawn uh, right round the Earth between the dark side and the side which is facing the sun. That's exactly what Job is describing. A circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. And, 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 so, and so it goes on. Psalm 103. Um, let, if we can just turn over a few pages into the book of Psalms. Psalm 103. See, the subject matter of all these passages we're looking at isn't a scientific subject. It's not about God having made the earth and God having this scientific knowledge and ability. It's actually about something else. But it, 
these are things are mentioned in passing, just as, just as facts. And this one is a case in point. Psalm 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So it, it, what the subject matter actually is, is the fact that God can forgive sins, that he can take people's sins away from them and, and wipe them out. How far away does he take them from us? As far as east is from the west. Now why didn't he say as far as the north is from the south? It's because you can measure that distance. It's a fixed distance from the north pole round to the south pole. But where it, there is no east pole, where do you start? Where do you end? If you're measuring east from west, it's an infinite distance. So the point is, God takes sins away infinitely. But he's relying on the fact that the earth is a sphere and that it rotates in one direction so that there is no limit to travelling east or west. It can only work with a sphere. <coughs> Even in the Hebrew language itself, the language that God chose to, to write the Old Testament of the Bible in, even built into that language itself is a description of how this works. In Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the earth, and then he creates light and darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now the remarkable thing is that the Hebrew word for light, which is lyil, um, sorry, the Hebrew word for night, which is lyil, it means to turn, to turn away the face, to turn your back on someone. And so even in the word itself, he's describing the process by which night happens. The earth turns its face away from the sun, and so it's night. That can only make sense if the earth is rotating upon its axis. So that's just one, one example out of the many, many examples there are of modern science discovering things that God actually wrote about thousands of years ago. Let's move on to medicine uh, very briefly then. Uh, modern medicine knows, knows many things about many of the um, illnesses that come upon human beings. In ancient time, we have a lot of records uh, of ancient medicine. We know many of the amazing and advanced things that the Egyptians did. They, they had amazing skills um, in, in medical ideas, an amazing no amount of knowledge. But they also had a lot of superstition mixed with that, which influenced their medical understanding, or beliefs, we should probably say, medical ideas, uh, which brought about medical ideas which were so obviously harmful, dangerous, and, and in many cases fatal. But the Bible, in particular the law of Moses, the Jewish, the old Hebrew scriptures, it contains many rules which appear ritualistic or that they're for spiritual purposes only. And yet when we look at them, we see that they're actually in line with modern medical understanding and practices of hygiene and, and, and so on. And we can see that God told Moses only right things, things that other nations didn't know about. And so when God tells the people that if they obeyed him, he would bring upon them none of the diseases which other nations suffered from. In actual fact, it was by their practical carrying out of God's instructions that they would avoid many of those things. Some of these things that we've only come to know recently. For example, the important role that blood plays in, in our life uh, and, and in the way our bodies work 
and in carry, not only carrying things around the body, but controlling levels of chemicals within our body and filtering and, and so on. The, the Bible talks a lot about the role that blood plays. In the law of Moses, there is an, inst- there is an instance where there's this strange ritual um, that they go through of killing and burning a red heifer. And then they use its ash, the ash of this, this, this burnt cow, um, with, with other ingredients to make some purifying water. And there's actually scientific basis to it they've more recently discovered. They were instructed to use only running water for drinking, for washing and sanitation. And it's, it's so obvious when you think about it, but only if you understand the concept of germs. And if you don't know that disease is caused by germs, then there is no reason why you shouldn't scoop water out of the same pool that you've, that you've recently put waste into. If you think about it, you've got a stream running past where you live, you take water to drink from upstream and you put your waste into downstream so it takes it away but only if you understand that that waste contains germs that if you then consume you will be ill but God instructed Israel about that and other nations didn't know it there are many laws in the Old Testament about food consumption about clean and unclean animals and various studies have shown that there's actually a factual and biological basis for some animals being better to eat than others, in line with God's teaching. Again, let's just briefly look at one in more detail. In 1847, there was an obstetrician who was called Ignaz Semmelweis, and he was concerned that one in six of the pregnant women who came into his hospital ward died. One in six died. And by comparison, at that time, if a baby was delivered, usually at home, by a midwife, only 3% of women died, as opposed to the 18% in hospitals. And he couldn't understand why this was, and he wanted to know. So he watched the medical students who were performing autopsies on the dead mothers. He watched them then go and wash their hands in a bowl of bloody water, wipe them on a shared towel, and then go and examine the living mothers. And he just wondered if something that was killing them was being taken to the living ones. Now, if you don't know about germs, you don't know that there's anything wrong with that. So he did an experiment and it involved, they knew that chlorine solutions, bleach solutions, um, killed, uh, were, were cleansing. They didn't know that there were germs for them to kill, but they knew that they were cleansing in some way. And so he made sure that all of these people were washing their hands in a chlorine solution before going to examine the living mothers. Um, and suddenly the death rate dropped from 18% down to 1%. And he discovered that something was being passed on. Uh, and, and, and so the understanding of, of germs um, uh, uh, microbiology began. But God knew about germs thousands of years before. And that's why he gave the Israelites instructions. 
Um, we won't turn to it. Numbers chapter 19. It says, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean for seven days. You've got germs on you from that dead body. You keep away from people for seven days. He had to purify himself with the cleansing water. We know we said about the, the cow being killed and burned. Um, that water had cleansing properties. Biologically, it had cleansing properties. He had to cleanse himself with it on the third day, and then on the seventh day, he would be considered clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Now, now why? There, were, there, were, there are spiritual um, applications to that, why, why all that was done. But primarily, um, the, we can see that there was a scientific basis to that. So that's just two examples of two different areas of life that, that the Bible speaks on and was right before any other human beings knew and understood these things. God wrote them in the Bible or he caused men uh, to, to write these things in the Bible. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is to look at the, the integrity of the Bible. This is, this is a, a, a major reason why we can accept the Bible as a book from God, a true book, with no errors, that is right about everything it says, is because there are no mistakes in it. When people write, um, uh, say, a series of novels, they have difficulty making sure that the plot works all the way through. And they might need somebody to, in, in, in book three, they might need somebody to be related to somebody else who that's impossible because of something they'd written in an earlier book. And, they, and they, even, even if they've planned the whole series in advance, they still get, get tied in knots. And yet the Bible wasn't written by one person over a, a period of a few years. It was written by dozens of people over a period of thousands of years who lived in different places, who came from different cultures, didn't necessarily know each other. And yet everything they say works together and makes the same point about uh, the hope of life after death. Now, archaeology and, and documentation and, and, and various other things prove, even to an atheist, that Jesus was a real person and that he lived upon this earth and several others of the New Testament characters as well that they did exist they're historically verifiable people from sources other than the Bible so we know that they lived and when these real people quoted from the Old Testament they didn't just use it as a book of moral tales of, of useful stories that, that get across a particular point which is what many people suggest that parts of the Bible are particularly the Old Testament they used it as a historical basis for their teaching and so if we take away the factual basis of any part of the Bible then the things that Jesus taught loses all of its power and most of its meaning there are many many references but we're just going to go through a few uh, of the key ones. We'll start with creation. Um, 
and we're not going to go to the, the, the Old Passages. We're going to go to the, the New Testament passages and see how they quote the Old Testament as fact and, and how that the whole thing holds together. So we'll go to um, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 uh, and verse 4. Again, Jesus isn't trying to prove that creation happened as described in Genesis chapter 1, that God made the earth and everything upon it in seven days. He, he's not trying to prove that. He's using that as absolute fact to prove the point that he is making. He's actually talking about whether people are allowed to um, divorce their wives and, and, and marry somebody else. But verse 4 of, of Matthew chapter 19, He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So you can see what, what, what he's actually talking about. He's actually talking about God said a man and a woman must stay together. That's what marriage is. But to back that up, he says, God who made them at the beginning made a man and he made a woman. And he put them together and he said, that's it, you two are together for life. It also impinges, I guess, on, on these, uh, the, the modern ideas about, uh, about gender identity and gender fluidity and, and all of these kind of things. God, at the beginning, when he was making the world, he made, them, he made a man and he made a woman. Simple. There's no, there's no discussion, no, no argument about it. It's, it. it's a fact, Jesus says. So God created everything. Well, what was he going to do with his creation? Well, he, was, he had a plan. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just, we'll create the world and let's see what happens with it. He had a plan right from the beginning. Um, for this, we need to go to Acts chapter 26. Again, we've got the New Testament quoting the Old Testament. Here, it's the Apostle Paul Acts chapter 26 and verse 22. Paul says, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. So he says, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm just telling you the same things that the prophets, people like Isaiah um, and Moses way back in the, in, in the early part of the Old Testament. So he's talking to Jews and saying that the things that are in your old Jewish scriptures tell you about Jesus. So, so what do they say? Well, verse 23, he explains that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show a light unto the people and to the Gentiles. So first of all, he says that the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour the uh, of, the, the, of the Jewish scriptures, the Messiah, is going to suffer, first of all. He's not just going to straightway become a king. He's going to suffer. He's going to, so he's going to die. 
and he's going to be the first that will rise from the dead. So not the only one. So there's a lot packed into a few words here. He's, he's going to be the first of many that will rise from the dead. And that then he will show a light to the people, which means the Jewish people, and then also to the Gentiles. So he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the spread of the gospel to the Jews and to all people of the world, and finally, the fact that Jesus will be king. And he's quoting those things from Isaiah, and then uses Moses and the prophets uh, to, to show that point. So he's brought us on to thinking about Jesus um, as, as, a, as an integral part of God's plan of salvation. So God created the world with a plan to save people from their sins and, and, and to establish his kingdom. And it centres around Jesus, the promised descendant. Uh, we're going to have to turn up a, a few passages here. Galatians chapter 3. If you think we're turning up a lot of passages, just be glad that I'm not getting you to turn up all the Old Testament ones that the New Testament is quoting from as well. Otherwise, we'd be backwards and forwards all over the place. Galatians chapter 3 uh, and, and, and verse 16. Now to, his, now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So Paul's explaining that in Genesis, when God promised Abraham that he would have the land of Israel for his own and that it would be given to his descendant, he had Jesus Christ in mind. He wasn't just talking about the Jewish people per se. He was specifically talking about his descendant. And the Apostle Paul says that descendant that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. Um, the New Testament opens in, in, in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he makes the point that Jesus is a descendant of, of Old Testament people. Uh, and, and, and Matthew goes on to, to quote Isaiah. We have reference to the star at Jesus' birth um, that, the, that the wise men from the east followed. They knew that the star was important. How did those men from a far country know that a star was important in relation to something that was happening in Israel? Well, probably those wise men were of a school, um, or a school of wise men, which had originally been set up by Daniel the prophet, who had, when he was um, exiled in Babylon, um, that he that he became the chief of these um, of these wise men and so he would have taught them and he would have taught them about things from the Hebrew scriptures including uh, things we won't go to it but Numbers chapter 24 explains the star the importance of the star and that's how these men from so far away who had nothing at all to do with the events going on in Judea at that time that's how they knew that this star was significant in relation to something to do with the God of Israel. So Jesus was the key, the key um, person within the plan of God. He was the seed promised to Abraham. 
but we saw first of all that um, Paul said in, 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 that um, Jesus had to die and be raised again well let's just look at that reading we, we took in uh, Acts chapter 8 Why do people believe the Bible? Well, why did this man believe the Bible? He was from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. He was an important man. Um, he, was the, um, he was something like the Chancellor of the Exchequer for um, the, the Queen of the Ethiopians. He had charge of all her treasure. And he'd come to know about the God of Israel and to believe in the God of Israel. So he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. You would only do that if you were worshipping Israel's God. So he was clearly convinced by something. And he'd got a copy of the Bible, as far as it was then. Of course, it was just the Old Testament. So he'd got a copy of the Bible, and as he's travelling, it says in his, in his chariot, it was probably some kind of sedan chair or, or, or something carried by uh, four slaves. Um, and he sat there reading the words of Isaiah the prophet. So Philip, sent by God, goes... Um, uh, to, to, to find him and he comes alongside him and he says do you understand what you're reading in Isaiah and the man says how can I unless somebody tells me so he asked Philip come up in the chariot and, and you can explain it to me so Philip does and, and it tells us here exactly what Old Testament scripture he was reading and the, see again the message is consistent the things that the um, the, the things that the Ethiopian eunuch wanted to know about the gospel of the New Testament are all there and integral to the Old Testament. He was reading verse 32 of, of Acts chapter 8. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life? is taken from the earth. And Philip teaches the Ethiopian eunuch using these, starting with these words in Isaiah. So let's just, let's just go and look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53 is where he's quoting from. Isaiah 53 um, and verse 3. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We have hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So it's describing Jesus um, rejected by the Jewish people, um, a man who suffered much trouble during his life for the things that he was teaching and for the fact that he was the son of God and they wouldn't believe that but what about him dying what did that achieve well verse 5 he was wounded for our transgressions and to the enlightened mind who, who understood the things of the early part of the Old Testament the law of Moses they would instantly see the sacrifices you kill an animal um, and, and God will forgive your sins and here is what it all pointed forward to. He, he was wounded for our transgressions. He suffered to take away our sins. By his stripes we are healed. And then verse 10. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Doesn't mean that God enjoyed seeing his son um, suffer at the hands of wicked people. But what it means is that it was part of God's plan. That's what God knew had to happen. And he was pleased that his plan was going ahead. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. So the seed carries on beyond Jesus. And that's what Paul was saying, that it it goes to the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles, through belief in Jesus. Verse 12, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's describing exactly how the the, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus happened. And also makes reference to the fact that a greater time will come. He was an offering to take away sin and to justify people before God. And this is very, very relevant because it's a succinct description of just how God's plan works. Just in those few verses at the end of that chapter 53 in Isaiah, God explains how he will save people from their sins and bring them to his kingdom. It touches on the, um, the land of Israel and Jerusalem in particular. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus makes a prophecy. He prophesies that Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Romans, which happened in AD 70, or years 68 to 70, just as Jesus had said it would. In, in verse 15 of, of Matthew chapter 24, he, he quotes from the prophet Daniel. So again, this link between Old and New Testament. From the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, this is the words of Daniel, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate is set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. And Jesus says that's the sign that the end of the era is coming. In that same prophecy, Jesus refers right back to the flood of Noah's day. Now that's very much disputed these days, the idea that the earth was covered by a complete flood. See, the usual explanation when they find a fossil on top of a mountain is that, ah, well, you see, this thing's evolved and the earth's changed and then this has happened and that's happened over millions and billions of years. Well, what about if everything was covered with water? That would lift the sea creatures up to the top of the mountains. The Bible says that the whole earth was covered. Even above the tops of the mountains, the water came. That would put sea creatures on top of mountains for them to be fossilised. Jesus accepted the Old Testament, the Genesis account of the flood. And he uses it as a fact. And unless it was a fact, then the analogy that he draws from that is pointless. He says it's an analogy, it's a warning to the people of his own day. And it's a warning to us too that the end of an era is coming and that we need to do something before it's too late, just as Noah had to do something before the flood came. In the parallel account of Matthew chapter 24, which is is in Luke's Gospel in chapter 21, Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. He's referring to another prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. 
In Isaiah chapter 5, God has given his people another chance and another chance and another chance and he's given them enough chances and now the time of punishment has come. Time has run out. He says, and now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. He's using the, the idea of a vineyard to describe his people Israel. I will take away the hedge thereof, so I'll take all the protection away and it shall be eaten up and I'll break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. So Jesus says, Jerusalem will be trodden down. And it was trodden down. And another Old Testament prophet said that it shall be, Jerusalem would be ploughed like a field. And as it happens, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, as a token gesture of how completely they destroyed it, they pulled a plough across the city, across where the city had stood. Proving their point, but also fulfilling God's prophecy. So all of these things have happened as the prophets said they would. And it all holds together and it all works. And what the Old Testament says and what the New Testament says all balances out. And it all links together so that the things Jesus says and the things that the Apostle Paul says tie up with the things that people like Moses and Isaiah and, and other people thousands of years before them said with no errors at all. So what about prophecies that haven't been fulfilled? Prophecies of the return of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Well, when Jesus said that um, uh, Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles, he didn't leave it there. He said that it would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So he puts an end date on it, a time when the Gentile age has ended and then it becomes God's age once again. He taught people about the kingdom of God on earth. And he referred several times to God's promise to Abraham. What was God's promise to Abraham? He said, all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it. So Abraham stood in the middle of the land of Israel on top of a mountain. And God says, look, in all four compass directions, everything you can see, I will give it to you. And Abraham had none of it, except one little cave to bury his wife in when she died so Jesus refers to God's promise to give Abraham and his seed the whole earth the land and much more beyond it after Jesus ascension into heaven after he died and been raised again and, and, and then gone into heaven his apostles carried on teaching the gospel they taught the things concerning, the way they described the gospel was that it was the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the record of this teaching ends in Acts chapter 28. Could we just come there um, as, our, as our last reference? Acts chapter 28. This is the end of the historical record of the teaching of the apostles. In verse um, 23, Paul, now uh, a captive, he's, he's not free to do what he wants, and yet here he is still teaching God's word. Verse 23 of Acts 28, When they had appointed Paul a day, 
there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening so all day long Paul taught people about the kingdom of God so the fact that God's kingdom is going to be set up on earth and he taught them about Jesus in other words how do you get to the kingdom of God how do you become part of it when it comes well you follow Jesus so as Jesus died and rose again so our sins can be taken away by uh, by, by going into the waters of baptism as if we died and coming out again so that when we actually die we will be raised as Jesus was eventually when the kingdom comes and he persuaded them and he got all of that from the Old Testament which he saw as completely reliable so they did all of this using the words of the Old Testament so at the end of that chapter we read that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence he had absolutely no doubts that the things that he was saying were absolutely true that they were the word of God and that's why he believed the Bible and this is why people choose to believe the Bible exactly as it's written adding nothing of their own and taking nothing away inventing nothing but believing the words of the Bible as they're written so the dictionary defines, defines science as the study of nature and the behaviour of natural things and the knowledge that we obtain about them. In other words, science is what we found out about the world so far. But God knew all this from the beginning because he did it and he wrote it in the Bible. In old times they believed that the world was flat and they ridiculed those who had discovered that it was a sphere. But God knew because he did it and he wrote about it now they say that everything has evolved and they ridicule those of us who understand that things were created but God knew things were created because he created them and he wrote about it in the Bible so the Bible as a whole is, is, is united and it is very relevant nothing has really changed in the way things work in this world since the time when the Bible was being written so the spiritual teaching of the Bible is also still good if it was good enough for Jesus it's good enough for us God communicated his plan long ago and that plan is still going on and it will come to its end the plan is that he would have a son who would be born of a woman who would live a sinless life who would die and rise again as a sacrifice for sins then he would go to heaven and stay there until the time was right to set up the kingdom and fulfill all the promises made in the Old Testament so this is why when we look at the Bible we can see a book which we can totally rely on which we can read and we can believe and we can trust that everything it says is true and good and it offers to us the only hope of salvation that, that makes sense in any way. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos 
information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.